enjoy, take out your Bibles with me again and let's open them up to the book of Genesis. To the book of Genesis. Now I want to ask that you turn with me to Genesis 42. Genesis 42. As we continue studying Joseph and his brothers um, coming towards the end of our verse-by-verse study of the book of Genesis. Begin in Genesis 42. Joseph is now the prime minister, so to speak, of the kingdom of Egypt. He is second only to Pharaoh himself. Many years before this, Joseph was attacked by his brothers in Canaan. He was sold into slavery. He was wrongly imprisoned in Egypt. But now by God's providence, Joseph is powerful. Joseph is wealthy. Seven years of plenty have come and they have gone. And Joseph worked with overseers of the various regions of Egypt to store up grain because he knew that seven years of famine were on the way. Well, that famine has now arrived. And that famine is very severe. And not only is Egypt affected, but the entire ancient world is affected. And throughout the ancient world, the word is being spread, if you want food, if you need bread, go to Egypt. And so people are coming to Egypt looking for food, and they're going to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh is saying, if you want food, if you want bread, there is one man to see. Go see Joseph. Joseph is the keeper of the bread that will give you life. Joseph is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, the one to whom we must go if we will live spiritually and eternally. Remember, this story is not mainly about Joseph. Really, this story is about the chosen family, Jacob, Israel. Jacob and his twelve sons. This is the family of whom God has promised that from them the Messiah will come. The great serpent slayer promised in Genesis 3.15, the one who's going to set all things right, the Savior, the Messiah. He's going to come. God has promised Him, and He will come from this family. And yet as Genesis 42 begins, this family is in trouble. This family from whom the Messiah is to come is on the brink of starvation and death. They are in Canaan. And the food is running out. There's nothing else in the pantry. No more flour in the bottom of the barrel. The sons are grown. The sons have their wives and their children. But they're still all together. Jacob is still the head of this household. And the situation is becoming dire. So let's pick up with verse 1. Genesis 42 and verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, so that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin 
Joseph's brother, with his brothers. For he feared that harm might happen to him. And thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now my outline this morning is very simple. We're going to walk through the first kind of half of this chapter. We're going to walk through verse, through verse 17 is how far we're going to go today. And as we go through these verses, I'm going to draw your attention to some truths and some principles um, that we need to see, that we need to hear. And then at the very end, I'm going to tell you what I think the main point of this passage is and how it applies to us. Now, Abraham was promised the land of Canaan. Abraham lived in Canaan. And there came upon Canaan a severe famine, and Abraham left and went to Egypt. Isaac was promised the land of Canaan. Isaac lived in the land of Canaan. And as he lived there, there came upon him a severe famine, so much so that he went to Egypt, except he was stopped by God before he got there, and he settled in a city called Gerar. Now we have Jacob experiencing a famine in the land of Canaan. He has been promised this land. He is living on the land. And a famine is so severe that he is sending his sons to Egypt. Mount Hermon, to be honest, as we read through the book of Genesis, we cannot help but get the impression that the promised land wasn't really all that great. This so-called land flowing with milk and honey appeared to have seasons of unfruitfulness that risked the lives of its inhabitants. And yet the Scriptures teach us that there was a rhyme and a reason for all this. The land promised to the patriarchs was the land of Canaan, but it was also something so much better. Through these seasons of famine, God was teaching them not to fall too in love with this earthly land that He was giving them. He was teaching them to long for a better country, a country where there is no famine, a country where you do not have to worry about such things. Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham, that Isaac, that Jacob, they were looking towards a heavenly country. Well, church, this is how it is with us. God's blessings in this life can be very great, but God also ordains and appoints tough seasons in our lives so that we do not fall too much in love with this world and the gifts that He gives us in this world. Our hearts and our minds, like those of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are to be set on a better country, a heavenly country, the world to come, the new heavens and the new earth where there will be no more suffering, no more pain, no more tears. God has promised that land to us, and we are to believe His promise, and we are to patiently wait for it as exiles in this world, as strangers and foreigners in this life. So let me just ask us straight up, right here at the beginning, are you in love with this world? Or are you longing and aching for the better country that God has promised to you? There is a famine of righteousness in this world. But there is coming a day in which we who have been saved by God's grace will be brought into the true canon, true Canaan, the true land that is flowing with milk and honey, the place where righteousness exists and flourishes everywhere in everyone. 
You say, Justin, why does God keep bringing these tough seasons into my life so that you will fall out of love with this world? So that you will long, ache, yearn for the day when you will be with Him forever. He is fitting you for heaven. And that's what He was doing here. Now, this, this famine was more severe than any we have seen yet. The circumstances are dire. Jacob says, go so that we won't die. So we're talking about death. The promised family is about to die. So Jacob hears that there is grain in Egypt. His family is about to starve, and yet he sees others who are receiving what they need. There are other families going to Egypt. They're finding food. And therefore, it is good and right for him, as the head of his household, to now take action to protect his family. Why will he let his family die when there are other families going to Egypt and getting what they need? I bring out that point simply to say that I think there are a lot of husbands and a lot of fathers, a lot of heads of households in our day who need to think about that. Why should their families starve spiritually when there is food to be had in the pages of the Bible, in the pulpits of local churches? Other families need spiritual food to live and their fathers are bringing them to church. The husbands are bringing the families to family worship and are feeding them. And meanwhile, there are other husbands and fathers letting their families starve. Too many men are like these sons of Jacob. The families are starving and Jacob says they're just looking at one another. The family is in crisis, starvation and death are approaching and none of the brothers are stepping up to do anything about it. There's no leadership among them. There's no one suggesting any radical action to be taken. And so Jacob acts wisely and righteously. He admonishes his sons. Sons, wake up, step up we got to do something here. Stop looking at each other. Yes, you should pray for your daily bread, but then you got to get up and get it. Yes, husbands and fathers, you should pray for God to bless your families, but then you need to get up and be the instrument that He uses to bless them. How many men live in spiritual laziness, spiritual idleness, Refusing to care for their families. Their families may be on the brink of eternal death, but there is life to be had. And yet so many men, like these brothers, they refuse to do the hard work of caring for the souls of those entrusted to their care. Who has time for all that? Who has time for talking about spiritual things with their families? Who has time to make sure that children are being educated in a God-centered way? Who has time to to think that that, that the entire family needs to be in church and to get them there and to make sure they're understanding what they're being taught? Who has time to do these things when there's there's sports to watch and and things that I want to do? And so these brothers, they're just going about their lives and their families are on the brink of death. And Jacob says, wake up! Other families are getting what they need. Why is ours not? He sends them to Egypt. Now, he does not send all of them. Remember, Jacob believes Joseph is dead. 
That's what he believes. He was told by the brothers, Joseph was attacked by a beast. He is dead. And so now there is the twelfth son, the other son of Rachel, Jacob's beloved wife, Benjamin. Many years before, Jacob sent Joseph to check on the other brothers in a land far away from home. Joseph never returned. He's not sending Benjamin now. Benjamin stays home. He's not going to risk the life of this beloved son, the apple of his eye. Jacob still struggles with this favoritism thing. And so ten brothers head to Egypt, and they are not alone. They are a part of a great company of Canaanites who are making this journey, all seeking to buy bread and live. So let's see what happens when they get to Egypt. Look in verse 6. Verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan, to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Just stop there. So we have the brothers coming before Joseph to buy food. They arrive before him. They bow before him. It's been 20 years since they've seen Joseph. Joseph immediately recognizes them. But they're not expecting to see him. And he's not the same man that he was 20 years ago. Maybe you've had the experience of looking through an old yearbook and seeing how much you've changed or others in your class have changed over the years. You look at the clothes you were wearing and the hairstyle that you had then or the hair that you had then and you think, did I really look like that? Was that that me? Well, that is what has happened in Joseph's life in a dramatic way. His features have now changed from a 17-year-old to a 37-year-old. He now wears Egyptian clothing. He speaks to his brothers, we'll learn later, in the Egyptian language through an interpreter. And so as far as the brothers can tell, they do not know this man. Yet as Joseph sees his brothers bow before him, he remembers his dreams. He remembers how 20 years before, God had given him two dreams that had taught him that there would come a day when his brothers would bow in his presence. Now, of course, the brothers had become very angry with Joseph when he had shared those dreams. And it was because of those dreams and because Joseph had been exalted by their father that they were jealous and hated him, him, that they acted in violence towards him. And yet we see the dreams now coming true. We wonder, though, Why did Joseph speak to his brothers so harshly? He doesn't tell them who he is. 
And he speaks to them in a rough manner. He even accuses them of being spies. What's that about? Well, to say he doesn't trust them is an understatement. Remember, everything we've seen about these ten brothers in the pages of Genesis to this point has been discouraging. Only Judah at the very end of one chapter, has begun to see a little bit of change. We've seen a a, a little glimpse of humility, a a glimpse of repentance on Judah's part. But other than that, everything we've read of these brothers has been wicked. We've seen them angry and violent, massacring an entire town. We've seen them be deceptive and dishonest, greedy and lustful. We've seen them marked by vengeance and wrath. So these are the brothers who come to him, and Joseph is certainly wondering, how are they going to act if they now know who I am? It would be really naive of us to think that Joseph had never thought about this before. I mean, surely in the seven years that Joseph has now been in power in Egypt, he has thought about what it would mean for his family to see him in his new position of authority and wealth. Would his brothers, if they now found out that this was him alive, would they try and kill him again to keep their evil deed a secret so they don't have to go home and tell dad what really happened? Or would they in their greed try and use his new position for their own benefit? The truth is the Bible does not tell us what is going through Joseph's mind in this moment. So we are left to wonder, we are left to speculate. What we do know is that God was at work in Joseph's heart and mind to cause him to respond the way he does. And God is going to work through his providence here so that these men are going to have their consciences pricked. God is leading these ten brothers to repentance through the way Joseph is responding. Now, Joseph accuses the brothers of being spies and he interrogates them. As he interrogates them, he's seeking to learn about the welfare of his family without letting them know who he is. He certainly noticed that Benjamin is not with them, which would make him wonder, why is Benjamin not with them? He's certainly interested to know how his father is doing. Is Jacob well? The primary information that Joseph seems to be seeking out is this. Have my brothers changed? Are my brothers the same men that they were 20 years ago? Or has there been a difference made in their lives? Have they repented of the kind of men they used to be? Joseph seems to want evidence of a change in his brothers' lives before he will tell them who he is. And as we read this passage, we wonder the same thing. Have these brothers changed? And the results are decidedly mixed. On the positive side... These men do speak with respect to Joseph. They do treat him with humility. They bow low before Joseph. They call him their master. They refer to themselves as his servants. And so they don't know who he is, but they're at least acting in a respectable, humble manner. So that's encouraging. But then we hear them say to Joseph that they are honest men. Honest men. Joseph may not know this, but you and I both know that these men have been living in a lie to this very day. That they have told their father that Joseph was attacked by an animal and is dead. And as far as we know, they have never confessed the truth to Jacob. 
nor have they ever mentioned to him the possibility that Joseph is still alive somewhere, a slave in some foreign kingdom. So when you and I hear them refer to themselves as honest men, we're not yet convinced that a real change has happened in their lives. And Joseph doesn't seem to be convinced either. Now, here's a lesson for us, Mount Hermon. It can be very, very hard to regain someone's trust once you've lost it. It can be very difficult to regain somebody's trust once you've lost it. Joseph would be a fool to trust his brothers now and to trust what they are saying in light of what he has experienced from them in the past. Joseph is not being bitter. He's not seeking to... to, to bring vengeance on his brothers. We'll see later that he, he actually cares for them deeply. He's going to be weeping by the, in just a few verses after our, our passage ends this morning as he overhears their conversation. Joseph loves his brothers, but he's not a fool. He's not going to trust them when they've proved themselves untrustworthy. Mount Hermon, this is why our word matters. We need to be men and women of our word We need to be men and women of integrity, men and women of faithfulness, people that can be trusted, because once we have lost that, it's really hard to get it back. It is really hard to regain trust. Now, let's watch as Joseph presses them a little more, still trying to get information out of them. So begin in verse 12. Verse 12, the interrogation continues. Verse 12, he said to them, No, It is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the son of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. So the brothers informed Joseph that Benjamin is back home. Benjamin's back home with Father Jacob. Together they are twelve brothers, except, they say, one is no more. Now here they are, unbeknownst to them, standing before the one that they claim is no more. Why would they say this? Why would they tell him one is no more? Well, it could be that they are just assuming that after this many years in slavery, Joseph is dead. Or... More likely, they are just continuing to live the lie that they have told their father the way they've been living for all these years. They are pretending that Joseph was attacked and killed by an animal. Joseph gives his brothers a test, a way for them to prove that they are not spies and that their motives in coming to Egypt are pure. He wants to see Benjamin. He says, I'm going to hold you in custody and send one of you, and when Benjamin comes back to me, Then by Pharaoh, I will have evidence that you are not spies. Now again, we don't know what Joseph's thinking here. Why is he putting his brothers in jail? We were tempted to think that maybe it is bitterness. Maybe it is revenge. Um, After all, because of these brothers, he spent many years 
in an Egyptian prison himself. But that's not the case, and we're going to see that later. And so, so something else seems to be happening here. In fact, Joseph seems to be playing a role. He seems to be playing the part of this harsh Egyptian ruler so that he can get all of his brothers together, so that he can watch them and listen to them without them knowing his identity. He's not ready to reveal himself, but he wants to be near his brothers. He wants to watch them interact. He wants to see what's going on in their hearts and in their minds. Now, twice in this passage, Joseph does something that the Scriptures strongly forbid. Twice, he takes an oath in the name of someone other than God. The Scriptures do not forbid the taking of all oaths. Jesus took an oath. Paul takes oaths in his letters. But the Scriptures are very clear that when we take an oath, we are to do so with reverence, with sobriety, and we are to do so only in the name of God. That a lawful oath is calling on God as the only one who knows the heart to bear witness to the truth. And if I swear falsely, I'm calling on God to judge me. This is an honor that belongs to God alone. Nobody else can know the heart fully. Nobody else can fulfill this kind of oath. And so what he does here is strongly condemned by the Bible. And yet, just as the Egyptians around Joseph believed that Pharaoh was a god, and therefore the Egyptians commonly swore in Pharaoh's name, we find Joseph doing the same thing here, twice. Now, maybe this really is Joseph sinning. It may very well be that Joseph has, has become acclimated to his Egyptian culture around him, and this is something that he does that he should not have done. The other possibility is that Joseph is just really laying it on thick in playing this role. In trying to hide his identity, he is acting out the part of this harsh Egyptian ruler. He wants to make sure his brothers have no reason to suspect who he is while he watches them and listens to them. Now, we're going to stop there and see what happens next time. But let me talk about the main point that I think is, is made in this passage and the application to us. What in the world is the main point of these verses? What is this passage teaching us? Well, remember the big picture. God is at work to bring these brothers to repentance. These are hardened men. These are men marked by all sorts of wicked habits and behaviors. But God is working through Joseph to draw them to Himself, to make these ten sons His own children, to make them holy. And how is God going to bring these ten men to a place of repentance? By bringing them low. By stripping away their pride. God is going to put these brothers in a place where they are helpless. There is nothing they can do but call out on God. That is what God is doing. He is bringing them low so that He might save their souls. God sends a famine their way. Famines have a way of humbling people. Famines have a way of moving people to call out on God. We sometimes think of America as being almost invincible as though nothing could bring our great nation down. But let God shut the heavens for a year. Let, let us have no rain for a year and watch what happens to our country. It is easy to be prideful and stubborn when things are going well. But when God holds back His blessings, when God brings us low, 
That's when we remember our great need of Him. But God is not only using this famine, He has now put these brothers in a very vulnerable situation. They are now at the mercy of this Egyptian ruler. They are in prison. They have no guarantee that they will ever now get out of prison. These brothers have their own families back in Canaan. Their livelihood is back in Canaan. Their kids are back in Canaan. And now here they are, hundreds of miles from home, in prison, helpless to do anything to set themselves free, completely at the mercy of this Egyptian ruler. God is bringing these prideful men low. He is working to break their hardened hearts. Church, is not this the way that God often works? When God is seeking to save the soul of a hardened sinner, He often humbles them in their circumstances in order to humble them in their hearts. Do you remember what Jesus said about salvation? He said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. God draws near to the humble, but He resists the proud. And so this, I think, is the main point for us in this passage, that God saves hardened sinners by bringing them low in their circumstances so He can bring them low in their hearts so that they will be ripe and ready to call out on Him in faith and repentance. Now, what is some application? Well, let me mention two. First, we need to make sure that we, like God, set spiritual priorities higher than temporal priorities. You see, God is willing to put these men through temporal tough times in order to do their souls good. God cares about these men, and He cares about every aspect of their lives, and it does not make Him happy to put them through grief. But He is willing to put them through a real famine. He is willing to put them in a real prison. He is willing to put them through real grief with all of the suffering that all of that entailed in order to save their souls. Spiritual priorities were first. Are we like this, church? J.C. Ryle said that soul love is the soul of all love. Is that the way we think? Or are we concerned mainly with temporal things? Do we concern ourselves with temporal priorities rather than spiritual priorities? I know I need to talk to so-and-so about the gospel, but, but all these temporal things get in the way. Like, what if they don't like me anymore? In our relationships with others, do we find ourselves talking about the things that matter, the things that are going to last, spiritual realities? Or do we find ourselves wasting our lives away talking about things that don't ultimately matter? Are we learning the truth that as important as it is to meet people's physical needs, and it is important to meet people's physical needs, but as important as that is, that comes underneath the priority of meeting people's spiritual needs. We minister to the body in order to minister to the soul. And if we stop here, we failed. Spiritual priorities must come first. These earthly bodies are going to die and be resurrected. But what value can we put on an eternal soul? Parents, this is why we must learn to discipline our children. We live in a culture that is increasingly against all kinds of discipline. 
especially against physical forms of discipline like spanking that bring temporal pain. Yet God disciplines those He loves. And He often does so by bringing painful temporal circumstances into the lives of His people for the good of their souls. God is wise and He's good and nobody's going to charge Him with being an abusive father. So we need to learn from His example and not the whims of our culture. The Bible says that a parent that does not discipline his child does not love that child. Why? Because the soul has priority. Proverbs twenty-two fifteen says, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. Proverbs twenty-nine fifteen says that the rod of correction imparts wisdom, but a child left to himself disgraces his mother. In other words, we need to make sure, now talking about spanking, we are to always do that wisely, well, sober-minded, with love, lots of qualifications to be added there. But with those qualifications made, we do not need to let temporal things keep us from doing what really matters, caring for our children's souls, caring for the souls of the people around us. And so let me ask you again, as we live out our lives, as we fulfill our various obligations and various callings, are we placing spiritual priorities above temporal priorities? Are our minds set on eternity, and is that shaping the way we live? That's one application. The other one I would make is this, and it's a tough one, but it's one that we need to face. Sometimes the more loving thing to do is not to interfere when God is bringing someone low. Sometimes the more loving thing to do is not to interfere when God is bringing someone low. We should always love. We should always pray for others. We should always seek to be there for others and to to speak truth and wisdom and kindness to them. We should always want to be there to help them. But sometimes really helping means not interfering when God is providentially working to break a hardened heart. Prison turned out to be very instrumental in the lives of Joseph's brothers. And as we will see next week, it was through this that they began to realize that what they were now experiencing was coming upon them because of their past sins. Had Joseph simply revealed himself, had Joseph simply treated his brothers with with love and kindness and, and loaded them up with bread and sent them on their way, repentance would have never come into the lives of these brothers. At least we have no reason to think that it would have come. But it was God who was working through Joseph by bringing these men low. Now this requires a great deal of wisdom on our part to know when to intervene and when to step back. In my years as a pastor, I've learned that there are some folks in our society who will call church after church after church seeking financial help. And if you help them, they come back again and again and again. And when you offer to speak to them about helping them budget, if you offer to speak to them about what the Word of God has to say about money or finances, they don't want that. They just want you to save them yet again from the situation they put themselves in. Well, church, what is the most loving thing to do in a situation like that? Is it to continue to save them again and again, or is it to let them reap the consequences of their actions? What is the loving thing to do? That's hard. I'm not claiming that's easy to discern. That's hard. 
There is such a thing as tough love because we see it in Jesus. We see it in the way Jesus interacted with the most hardened people that he met, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We see it in his interaction with the rich young ruler. We see tough love when God interacted with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, full of pride. What does God do? He takes away his sanity, makes him like an animal, brings him low. So that Nebuchadnezzar then rises up again and says, I will bless the true God whose dominion is an everlasting dominion. And so we need to be careful that we don't short-circuit the discipline of God. We don't want to call it love when we prevent somebody with a hardened heart from being humbled by God's providence. Paul said to the Thessalonians, if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. Think, Man, Paul, that's harsh. If a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. What was Paul saying? He was saying you need to let the man reap what he sows. Because God often works through that. God often works through people experiencing the consequences of their actions. This is love. It is the soul that we are to be chiefly concerned about. And this kind of discipline can be good for the soul. Hebrews 12 says this, God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, finally, Mount Hermon, let me just remind us just how much our God loves us. Some of us in this room can point to difficult circumstances that God providentially put us into so that our hardened hearts would be broken and repentance and faith would happen in our lives. We can point to moments in our past when we say, God disciplined me and it hurt. And I thank God for it because it was so good for my soul. But that's not the ultimate expression of God's love. The ultimate expression of God's love was that He was willing to send His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for sinners. Christ was my substitute on the cross. And He was yours if you're His by faith. God did not spare His own Son God did not hold back pain from His own Son. God did not keep His own Son from suffering. Rather, here is the only one in the whole universe who did not deserve a single moment of pain or a single degree of pain. And yet Jesus Christ bore suffering beyond all measure for the good of souls. Because of God's love for our souls. And if God was willing to do this for Him, God was willing to do this for us. How can we not now love Him? How can we not trust Him? Will we take God at His word? Will we follow Him? We seek to obey Him. I pray that God will increase our faith and our love through Jesus Christ. Let's pray.